According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are still in Hebrews chapter 1. Join me there, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 1. You've noticed this is not the Jeremiah schedule. We're not doing one chapter per week, as we did with Isaiah, as we did with Jeremiah. Uh, if we spend a month in verses 1 through 4, or if we spend two months in verses 1 through 4, that's not enough time. Because the depth of doctrine in the prologue sets the table for the whole book of Hebrews. And uh, we want to get off on the right foot. We want to get off on a good start so that we have the, uh, the basis by which to study everything else that follows. 13 chapters of Hebrews in some very deep things. And, and the author even warns his readers. He says, I've got stuff I want to tell you about Melchizedek and you can't handle it. You don't have the ears to hear. And uh, there's, there's some difficult things. And thankfully, because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling each one of us, and if we're not slow of hearing as the uh, recipients of this epistle had become, then this text is going to be powerful and it's going to bless us. And we as a congregation are going to understand our priesthood in ways that maybe we've never understood it before. And, and the book of Hebrews is going to come alive and equip us to enter into that holy of holies and to serve there daily, all day, every day. We're going to learn about our Sabbath rest, that it's today, day after day as long as it's called today. So there's a lot in front of us here, but for the time being, we're still dealing with uh, verses 1 through 4, and we're dealing with the Son, who is the celebrity of the universe, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. And so beyond every bit of doctrine from the Old Testament, through burning bushes and through pillars of fire, through tabernacle, through animal sacrifices, through prophets, through priests, through judges, through all of that, finally comes the living word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the first Advent ministry of Jesus Christ is unique in all of human history and the fact that God dwelt among us and God taught us. We have this once and for all revelation in His Son. In the last of these days has spoken to us in His Son. And then the rest of this glorifies the Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world being the radiance of His glory, and the exact representation of His nature, upholding all things by the word of His power. All right, and so that's, uh, all of that is a celebration of the Son, who He is and what He's designed to do. It goes on to say, when He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this is what we're looking at here this morning. We're looking at all these verses and centering in on the glory of Jesus Christ. And we want to make sure that we're solid on it before we move on, before we move past the, uh, the prologue. But everything centers on the, the glory of Christ and the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. And when we identify that, then we're in pretty good shape. When we, then we can see ourselves and we can see where we plug in because we are in Christ. It's uh, what, a, what an unbelievable grace blessing to be a fellow heir with the heir of all things, okay? And that's us. You and I, believers in the church age, we are body and bride of Jesus Christ. And that is a unique blessing 
that we want to highlight here for us this morning. Before we get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, humbling our hearts before the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning asking for your faithfulness and recognizing you have to be faithful, Father. You cannot not be faithful. And so we call upon that faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to teach us, remove from us, Father, if we have a sin issue or if we are distracted in any way, if we're coming in here this morning uh, with distracted thinking and worried and concerned about different things. Father, get rid of those thorns, the thorny ground, the rocky soil. Clear all that away right here, right now. Father, produce within each one of us the depth of soil that's necessary to receive the Word implanted and minister Your Word to each one of us here today. I thank You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So picking up where we left off, and I had had to leave it hanging a week ago and really dislike doing that, so let's uh, jump ahead to what we've been looking at. And I'll just grab it from this slide here. We're centering in the middle of verse 2, or the end of verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken. And what we have is a tandem of speaking verbs. God spoke and God spoke. So having spoken, He now spoke. Okay. So having spoken long ago, in these last days, He spoke. And He spoke to us in His Son, the appointed heir of all things. And now this final expression, through whom also He made the world. And we need to identify with this. There's so many words for world and there's so many concepts of world that biblically speaking we want to be oriented to. There's the cosmos world. There's the gay world. When you think of geo, your geo terminology of of heavens and earth, right? Shemayim and and we've got heavens and earth. We've got the gay uh, terminology with respect to the planet, okay? Cosmos with respect to the arrangement. We're familiar with that. But then we have ion, And Ion is the term that we have here. And this is what we have to spend our time dealing with. Because it's not just the cosmos arrangement, it is the Ion, the ages. And we even have, you know, English words that come out of the idea of Ion. We talk about something that takes a long time, like the pastor's boring illustration just lasted for eons, (laughs) right? And he just kept going for eons with this silly illustration. I get it already. That's an English word that comes from the Greek Ion. And so we talk about worlds, and, and, the, and the, the Greek language has a way to express world in a lot of different ways, from the planet, you know, the real estate, the geography, to the arrangement. The most common word is cosmos, all right? Cosmos is the typical word for world. It's what we're accustomed to. It speaks of the arrangement. You ladies, when you wear cosmetics, you can remember cosmos. You can remember that when you put on your cosmetics, when you are achieving the cosmeto verb, okay, yeah, the guys, you can't maybe relate to this, but uh, when, when you're watching your women cosmet, cosmet, cosmetize, okay, <laughs> they are arranging things, right? They have an arrangement to how they do that. And it's beautiful, it's fun, and we're thankful. But the, uh, the nature of the arrangement is what we talk about with the cosmos. And we have to understand that because otherwise... We, we, um, we might get depressed. We might get in despair. Um, we, this, this is my father's world, but it's now a fallen world. And the present arrangement is that mankind has fallen into sin and that Satan is the god of this age and that we live in a fallen world. And so when, when the unbeliever wants to mock us and say, how can a loving God 
uh, allow this, all this bad stuff to happen, stop them right there and say, hey, quit mocking the loving God. Let me tell you about this arrangement. Let me tell you about the cosmos because this is a fallen world, and, but God has provision for that. If you really want to talk about love, I'll tell you all about how God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Okay? So just throw it back in their face. And if they want to mock the God of love, say, hey, let me tell you about this fallen cosmos. All right? And so we have, we're equipped to deal with this. We're equipped to deal with the cosmos. We also want to be equipped to deal with the ages, through whom also He made the ages the ion. And so I don't mind it being translated world. And there are places where ion is translated world instead of ages. This is one of them. And we can, we can render it in English, through whom also he made the world or through whom also he made the ages. And I prefer to render it like that. That Jesus Christ is the creator and the director. He has sovereign control over the unfolding of the ages. And so in understanding the plan of God, understanding the alpha to omega plan of God is critical recognizing where we are today in the church. We're not a part of Israel. We're not a part of the Old Testament. We're not a part of the Gentiles of the Old Testament. We're not on the angelic earth. We're not in the Garden of Eden. We're, past, we're long past the age of innocence, right? So, uh, which is a good thing. Okay, I'm, I'm thankful for that. In fact, I wouldn't trade the church age for anything. Not, not any age that's come before and even any age that's still yet to come. The millennium is fun to think about, but I'd prefer the church age. The fullness of time we're looking for, new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There is coming on the new earth a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. That's going to be an amazing thing to behold. A thousand generations. But I wouldn't trade the church age for that. Okay? Because we are the bride of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are baptized into personal union with God the Son. We are fellow heirs with the heir of all things, and that is far above anything in the, in the coming kingdom. And so these things, I think, are, are significant and, and important for us to understand. And so we, can, we want to understand if, if this is the word for world, if we're talking about the age world or the world age, then we understand it in terms of the sequence and the unfolding of time. And we do the same thing in modern English. We do the same thing in our day and age, right? Our day and age. See, we spent the last week now going back over old pictures and different things and talking my father-in-law's in heaven and we've got that service coming up and we realize, you know, that was a different world back then, okay? The world he grew up in is not our world today. That's a different age and, uh, and things. When he shipped out to Korea, he shipped out to Korea on a ship, <laughs> okay? Out of the port of Seattle, they sailed. I mean, I mean, air travel existed, but it wasn't like today. Uh, moving troops around was on a boat. And uh, that, was, that was a different world. So when we talk about the different worlds, I think it's important. We can study uh, the, these uses of, of ion in their connection. We want to understand the unfolding ages. And so we put charts together and diagrams. You know, dispensationalism is the greatest thing in the world because we have the best charts that have ever been drawn in the history of the church age. And we're famous for our charts. And it's a good thing, all right? From, uh, you know, Schofield to Larkin to everybody. You know, the charts are, are, are great. But they're, they're helpful if you're a visual learner like I am, all right? Then it helps you to keep things straight and to realize that, you know what? From the alpha moment to the omega moment, God has been unfolding a sequence. And he's done so with, with precision. And there's a reason why earlier things have to happen before later things can be revealed. 
And so, uh, yeah, Adam and Eve weren't the first uh, pastor and pastor's wife, okay? We didn't have the church back in, in the age of innocence. And, uh, and, and why was the law given? And why was Israel a covenant nation? And what was the purpose of, of Mosaic law? And all of these things, they're given in a sequence and for a reason. Humanity had to demonstrate that nobody measures up. If you think you measure up, reread your Old Testament. Nobody measures up, okay? Christ is the only one that fulfilled the law that was lived in total perfection to satisfy the Father. Jesus Christ is the only one that was qualified to do the work that He did on the cross. And anything else that tries to achieve something by human effort is a waste of time. Everything is about Christ. And we need to understand that for the sequence of what it is. And so... Um, depending on how complicated you want to get it. We've got angels, we've got humanity, we have Israel, we have church, and that's where we are today in the, uh, in the church. Okay? We can break it down into two stages. There's the apostolic church and the modern church or the, the pre-canon, post-canon. We recognize that. The early church was a transitionary period where they had miracles and tongues and healing and all the, all the charismatic gifts. But with the completion of the New Testament, now we're in the, the, the main part of the church right there. Okay, the age of the local church. We know where we are and we know where we're going. We know what's coming up next. We know that at any moment a trumpet can sound and we're gone. We're out of here. Okay? Because the rapture of the church is the next event on the calendar and there is nothing that has to happen before the trumpet sounds. All right? This is our blessing. This is our blessed hope. And it, to me it is, it is um, noteworthy and, and tragic that churches today no longer teach this that eschatology is off the table, that it seems like everything in Christendom now just wants to be um, therapeutic <laughs> so that you can feel better, okay? It's moralistic. Be a good person and feel better. And if, if that's the kind of God that you can serve, then you'll fit in very well in a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic type church. But when they ignore eschatology, when they ignore prophecy, they're stealing from their flock, that blessed hope that belongs to each one of us that at any moment we're going to hear that trumpet. That at any moment we're going to be face to face with Jesus Christ. Any moment we're going to stand before the Bema. We're going to stand before the Bema and fire is going to hit our works. And we're going to see a reward and we're going to suffer loss of reward. And that can happen today. That can happen right here, right now. So uh, understanding this is vital. Recognizing that Israel's not done. Israel has a future once the church is gone. That's huge because too many people today want to take the covenant nation and, and throw them away. And they say God's done with the Jews. There's no future for Israel. When they say that, it's a lie from the pit of hell. And we, ha- we don't, don't let them get away with it. Stop them right there. Say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. God is not a liar. He will not lie to David. He made promises to David. And if you're telling me that he can lie to David, then I'm telling you he can lie to us too. If he, can, if he can dump his plan for Israel and start over with the church, if replacement theology is accurate, then guess what? He can dump us and start over with something better than us. Okay, But that's not what he did. He didn't dump Israel. He set Israel to the side for the moment, for the time being, to call out a bride for his son. The present church is, a, is really it's a great big parenthesis. It's a great big parenthesis. And as soon as we're out of here, then that closed parenthesis, God resumes his program for the Jewish people. And Israel has a future. We want to be clear on that. 
So we have these charts. If you want more on this, the, it's in the back of our Plan of God reader. We've got some charts. You can get a PDF and, and uh, you can stare at the charts. But more than staring at the charts, though, read the words. Okay, Bugs me to death how many people love, they've got the Larkin book of dispensational charts. They stare at the charts for hours and hours and they never read the chapters. They never read the text. And then, uh, and then they look all puzzled when I want to talk to them about the dispensation of the fullness of time. I'm like, well, don't you have Larkin? Larkin wrote about it, but you've got to read the paragraphs. You've got to read the chapters, okay? Because if you're just staring at the pictures, they're in the pictures too, but you don't pay attention to them until you read the, the text. All right, so we have the world that was, the world that is, and the world to come. And the world that was is, is the angelic earth, by the way. Before man, there were angels. We get that. Satan was a fallen creature in, in Genesis chapter 3. The, he's a fallen creature. Uh, before uh, The angels were around before men were around. We have the world that was. Not a lot of information on it, but glimpses here and there. We taught this last week. I'm not going to repeat it. But Isaiah 14 is on the angelic earth. Ezekiel 28 is on the angelic earth. And we saw a very developed economy on that earth. We saw a temple. We saw sanctuaries. We saw money changing. We saw uh, corruption uh, of his wisdom because of his trade. He became filthy rich and failed the prosperity test in the fall of Satan that's, that's viewed there both in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Jeremiah 4 describes the warfare. Jeremiah 4 describes the angelic warfare that destroyed the angelic earth and that left it in the tohu wabohu destruction of Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless and void. And, dark, and, dark, and the Holy Spirit was brooding over the surface of the deep. That's described in Genesis 1-2, but the detail comes in Jeremiah 4. And how the earth became tohu wabohu. The, the wrath of God upon this earth as, as uh, the angelic warfare was unfolding. Nowadays, in 1 Corinthians 2, 6-8, we find out that the rulers of the world is a reference to the invisible realm. The, uh, the angels are limited now to an invisible realm as they watch humanity. This world is now, the arrangement of this world now has humanity, the stewards of the earth, while angels are observing in their invisible angelic dimension. All right, so understanding that, we then give way from the world that was now to the world of man. And the world of man is interesting, not only historically, but morally. The world of man, sometimes called the dispensation of Gentiles, right? Or the age of conscience, the age of innocence, the age of human government. Depending on who you're reading, there'll be different terms for it. But the, um, I, I prefer to call it the dispensation of man or the world of man. I, I kept this outline consistent with the I own world terminology of, of Hebrews chapter 1. And so there's the world that was, that's the angelic world, the world age, okay? It was still this planet, but it was the world age of the angels, followed by the world age of man, Okay? Isn't it interesting how so much mythology talks about the age of man and what came before the age of man? Oh, that golden age. The golden age of the gods, the golden age of the titans, the golden age of... And boy, if we could only go back to those good old days because man came along and we just wreck everything. Well, all of that mythology, I think, is fallen angelic sour grapes. <laughs> I think it's the, it's the fallen angels lamenting the days gone by. And in utter defiance, in utter disdain for these dust creatures we call humanity. But the world of man, 
We can think of it historically, we can think of it dispensationally, we can think of it morally. So often the uh, Bible talks about the days of Noah and the wickedness of the days of Noah and the, they're, they're eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and everything is just a total secularism of, of earthly life. Kind of like now. <laughs> all right? You get an entire culture that's all wrapped up in secularism of daily life. And, uh, and here we have it. And why is that significant? That not only historically is the dispensation of, of the Gentiles what it was, but the patterns that were set there become promises for the future. They are warnings to us that as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be at the coming of the Son of Man. When Jesus Christ returns at His second advent, the moral conditions of this planet are going to be like it was back then when He destroyed the world with a flood and only Noah and his family were brought through. And so we think of the world of man, we think about the days of Noah, we think about those conditions, and that's the world that was. While the angels are then left in an invisible realm to watch all this, say, God is so faithful in what he does. So um, if you're not familiar with these, we can take a look at them. Isaiah 54, 9. And um, of course, I think we're accustomed to we, we spent some, a lot of time in Isaiah, right? Isaiah 52, the coming servant. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Isaiah 54, shout for joy. And uh, there's great things coming up. And, uh, and uh, promises of what they're looking forward to in their coming kingdom. But what is it going to take to bring them to that coming kingdom? And um, anyway, we've got this here. Uh, verse 9 is the key verse. There's a surrounding context to this. Verse 8 says, In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. So setting them aside, now bringing them back. For, for this is like the days of Noah to me when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. How does replacement theology answer this? They don't. They can't. They just ignore it. They just allegorize everything in the Old Testament and they say, well, it was all just, they didn't really mean it. It was all just allegory looking ahead to the church. So they steal it as if it applies to them and it doesn't. It applies to Israel. This is God's covenant with Israel. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 24, verses 7 and 8. His disciples were uh, asking questions about um, when will these things happen? Tell us what, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now what age is that? Since Jesus Christ is in charge of all these ages, He, he makes these ages, He sovereignly directs the course of these ages, they're asking a great question and they're asking the right guy, okay? And so he gives a, uh, a long answer here, what we call the Olivet Discourse, and he gives this long answer in uh, chapter 24 and in chapter 25, and he starts with, see to it that no one misleads you. There's a reason why I, I want to make sure we're solid. I want to make sure that we're not, not going to be tossed to and fro. 
I don't want anybody, any of my sheep to get all up in arms and out of sorts and all bewildered because of some goofy thing they hear on the radio or there's somebody tells them at work or, or whatever. No, we're going to be solid. We're going to be grounded in a biblical eschatology. See to it that no one misleads you. And then all these other things. False teachers will come, false Christ, misleading many. Wars and rumors of wars and all these other things. When we get down to uh, verse 37 then, um, verse 36 says, uh, of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. All right, Jesus Christ in His humanity was not uh, entitled to learn this. God withheld it even from His Son in, in His humanity, right? And uh, not even the angels are aware. They can read the Bible like we can read the Bible, but as far as the details and the specificity, God has withheld that. That's need to know, and they don't need to know. They want to know. <laughs> Things into which angels long to look, but they're not getting it yet, okay? For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Here we have it again. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, Okay? And those activities aren't wrong in and of themselves. I like eating. Don't you like eating? We're going to eat today. We got burgers coming up, okay? Nothing wrong with eating, drinking, marrying, none of that. But when that becomes the totality of your existence, when your whole life is nothing but secularism and temporal life living, that's a problem. And when a culture is totally given over to that, when a planet is totally given over to that, where are we? And uh, this is what we have to to recognize until the very day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so the second advent of Jesus Christ is going to be like that to this lost and dying world in the tribulation. You know that program of Antichrist when he has unrestrained permissive will to unleash every deception upon this world. They're going to think it's the greatest thing ever. Never mind the floods and the tornadoes and the destruction and the wrath and, and all the fear. Oh no, we're having a great time. We're having a great time, right? Like a drunk puking in the gutter. Don't tell him he's not having a great time. Boy, howdy. Yeah, he's having a marvelous time. We're having fun now. So a whole planet that's under divine discipline in the tribulation. And there, it's just like one party after another. The days of Noah, here we are. Isn't this great? Isn't this great? And it's curious to me. We, I think we see it in the news. I think we see it. We see a media convincing people that up is down and down is up. And this is the, you know, they'll convince you this is the worst economy since the Great Depression. So you've got to vote for our guy. And then they, t- they convince you this is the greatest economy ever since the Roaring Twenties. And Really? Can we look at some facts or are we just going to listen to the propaganda here? What are we doing? And all of this, and this is what Satan can do now without the great delusion. Imagine what he's going to do when the church is raptured and the great delusion is unleashed upon this world. Man, they're going to believe all kinds of things that you and I would look at and go, no way. Who would believe that? You know. Anyway, more on that. Talk about different worlds a generation ago. Who would have believed there's 78 genders? Okay, you know? I mean, back then they knew men and women. All right. 
1 Peter 3.20. 1 Peter 3.20. Christ, uh, verse 18 tells us, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Okay, this is the work of Christ of redemption. This is the work of Christ to reconcile us to the Father. This is a work of Christ upon the cross. He did many things at the cross, okay? Something we're going to study shortly in Hebrews is His work of purification. He made purification for sins, and He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so uh, we've got we've to dig that through too and find out, wait a minute, is redemption the same as purification or we have separate aspects? Are there separate doctrines that are happening here? So here's this verse. And then uh, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which also, notice, in the Spirit also. His body went into the grave for three days, but where did his Spirit go? We're told his Spirit went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. All right. Colonel Thien once wrote a book years ago called Victorious Proclamation, and it centered on this very thing. That while his body was in the tomb, Jesus was still preaching. And he went down to the uttermost parts of the earth, called the heart of the earth, by the way, the cardia of the earth. So he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when, notice, the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. And I love that, the patience of God, because what are we dealing with today? Today we're seeing the church age is the patience of God. Now, don't, don't think that God is slow, as some count slowness. God is patient towards you, not desiring any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so here's the patience of God in the days of Noah. So understanding the world of man in the days of Noah, I think, is vital and seeing how this plan unfolds. During the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Can you imagine? You're preaching for a hundred years, and what do you have to show for it? You put your family on a boat and cross over to the new world. Okay? Noah was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years, and then put his family on the boat, and were the only eight to survive. All right. The world of man is followed by the nation of Israel. And uh, when you're thinking about through whom he made the worlds, there's a whole new world now when he calls out Abraham. With the call of Abraham, God sets apart a theocratic nation. And so we can think of this as the theocratic nation world age. Okay? The theocratic nation world age. There's a there's a change that happens upon this earth with the call of Abraham. It's not just humanity in general. With humanity, where there's a progression from angels to humans. There's a, a very significant progression. And we'll center on that because the first two chapters of Hebrews is all angels. All right? The first two chapters of Hebrews is all about the angels. And, and the author asks himself, what is man? He quotes the Psalms here and he says, you know what? He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we're speaking, but he, he uh, entrusted this to man. It's Hebrews 2.5, by the way. 
He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. So there is a coming world, a coming world age. And it's not going to be given to the angels. It's given to humanity. Now within the outcalling of humanity then is a very special people. Not special because they deserve it, not special because they're better, special because God appointed them. What makes them special is God's choice of them. The Jewish people is the theocratic nation upon this earth. Has been since the call of Abraham, continues to be to this day. Will always be his covenant nation, his theocratic nation on this earth. And so you can think of that as the theocratic nation world. And, and it's been the case under promise, under law, in the first advent incarnation. Okay, Like I say, they're presently on hold, but they're still the chosen people. Even in their discipline, don't dare think that, oh, because they're under discipline that I can persecute them. Oh, no. <laughs> okay? God will still bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. They are the Jewish people. Even under unbelief, don't you dare curse Israel. They have a coming tribulation. They have a coming millennial kingdom. And in all these ages, they are the theocratic nation on this earth. They are the covenant nation. They are the holy people before the Lord. And they represent the Lord to all the Gentile nations and they represent all those Gentile nations before the Lord. They have a mediator ministry. All right, and uh, we don't want to lose sight of that. And and so um, Matthew thirteen, Jesus speaks to this in his in his parables. Matthew twenty four, Matthew twenty eight. Time and time again, we see the reference that's being made, and to me, that's significant. We want to know what is the what is God's purpose for Israel, and is it did He replace it with us? No, not at all. Not at all. So, what does Jesus say here in Matthew thirteen? The uh, let me grab some of these. And I don't know if, if, if uh, people find Old Testament boring and whatever. I, I don't. I love the Old Testament. But it's, it's, it's so, it, it leads to where we are now in the body of Christ, in the church. But it also spotlights what God's intent is for the, the covenant nation. What's his intent for the Jewish people? His promises to David, the Davidic covenant, all these things. They have a future in the millennium and on the new earth. So how, how do you get bored with that? It's, it's, the, it's the prototype, it's a pattern, and we can glean principles from it. We don't throw out our Old Testament just because we're, uh, we're in the uh, church age. All right. And so uh, in the par- in, as Jesus explains the parable of the sower here, the disciples say, please explain to us the parable of the tares. He said, the one who sows good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, that's cosmos. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. Now, now don't put church in here anywhere, all right? This is pre-Pentecost. This is Israel. And uh, the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, the end of the Ion. The end of the Ion, okay? When the, when the disciples are telling us, you're saying, tell us about the end of the age. Tell us about when you're coming again. Tell, they are Jews speaking in a Jewish context. And Jesus doesn't give them rapture information. He gives them second advent information. He gives them Armageddon information. He gives them millennial kingdom information. 
And so the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. You ever consider that? How he sends out the angels to gather the harvest? That's not rapture. At the rapture, the Lord himself descends with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ rise first. At this harvest, he sends out the angels to sweep the world. Big difference. And so, verse 40, just as the uh, tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. You know, in the rapture, we get snatched and we get taken to heaven. At the second advent, all these unbelievers get snatched. They get thrown into hell. (laughs) And you're telling me there's the same thing? Are you kidding me? They couldn't be more different. Verse uh, 49, so it will be at the end of the age The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous, will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not the rapture, are you kidding me? We get to be caught up together with the saints in the air to meet the Lord in the air. He takes us home to heaven. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. When I come again and receive you to myself, there you will be also. And it just, it couldn't be more different. But people read these things and they get confused and they, you know, two people are in a field and one is taken and one is left and and there's just confusion. I don't want you guys to be unstable in that regard. All right, Matthew 24 and verse 3. We were just there a little bit ago. Sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It's not a rapture question. They don't have a clue about the coming rapture. Rapture is mystery in the Old, in the, uh, Old Testament or before Pentecost. So he's going to answer about the end of the age. And he's going to talk about the, the birth pangs, the beginning of birth pangs, and the abomination of desolation, and, and uh, signs in the heavens. The sun, moon, and stars going dark, the stars falling from heaven. All right? And all of these things are signs of the second advent of Jesus Christ. They are not signs of the rapture of the church. There is not one sign of the rapture of the church. Anyone that believes the rapture is the second advent, they're not looking for the rapture. They're looking for signs. You and I aren't looking for signs. We're just listening for a trumpet because there are no signs that have to happen before the rapture of the church. And by the way, does this give any other impact to you in in the sense of the Great Commission? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of of the age. We claim that a lot as church age believers, but we're wrong, ultimately speaking. It will have its old, our, our application is secondary. Ultimately, that's an Israel application. Ultimately, that's for tribulational martyrs, that's for their great commission ministry in the tribulation to all the Gentiles. Okay? We do claim a great commission imperative in our, as an application. But primarily, that's to Israel. All right. So the world that was, the world of man, the theocratic nation world, well, guess what? Since Pentecost of 33 AD, there's a new world around here. There's a new age. And this is the church. We call it the church age. We call it this present evil age. All right. And I don't know, I thought uh, there was a lot of evil in, in the Old Testament. I thought there was a lot of evil in the days of Noah. Thought there was a lot of evil when the uh, when the angels fell. <laughs> well, but it's this one that's called 
the present evil age. It's this one where Satan is elevated to theos status. He's called the God of this age. See, to me that's uh, curious. But we now live in a world, in a world age, you and I live in a world age where a seated redeemer is our advocate before the Father's throne. That's never happened before. You talk about a unique world age. We have resources available that Old Testament believers couldn't dream of. The disciples are all boo-hooing because Jesus was going away and Jesus says, stop that. If you love me, you would rejoice that I'm going away. It's to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, then the helper can't come to you. Say, Jesus says, I've got to ascend to the Father. I've got to be seated at the Father's right hand. The blessing of having Jesus Christ seated in session is that the Father and the Son can then send the Holy Spirit to indwell the church. And with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, you and I get to become baptized into union with Jesus Christ. You and I get to become, we get to receive the fullness of God. You and I get to become united in, with the heir of all things. I'm telling you, this is such a unique period of time. It's never been seen before on this world. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of God, even the Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I don't even have to turn there. That's Galatians 1.4. My childhood pastor used that as his call to worship. So every Bible class I ever sat under, I remember Pastor Ken Jensen reciting Galatians 1, 3, and 4, 3, 4, and 5. Okay? That was his call to worship. But here we are, this present evil age. Along with the maximum blessings to God's children, what comes with that? Maximum conflict, maximum testing. We live in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. Jesus warned Peter, he said, Peter, Satan's demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And guess what? He, he's got it. Satan has total permission to sift in this present evil age. That's why we're given armor. That's why we're given the divine resources we're given. You and I wrestle against principalities and powers, rulers and authorities. Old Testament saints weren't equipped to deal with that. We have the resources in the church age to deal with that. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. When we think about how unique we have it, 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 it almost boggles the mind sometimes. Um, we certainly didn't destroy it. I didn't uh, deserve it. All right. My eye caught the word destroy in verse 10. Deserve. All right, verse 11. These things happen to them as an example. You got the whole Old Testament example. Don't throw away your Bible. Learn from it. Learn from the Old Testament example and then be humbled because to whom much is given shall much be required. And you and I are expected to learn from that example. These things happen to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. There's an idiom. And that's the same vocabulary we have today in Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus Christ is the creator of the ages. He's the designer, the creator, the builder. He has sovereign control in the unfolding of these ages. But it's the church age. It's the body of Christ. We're the focal point. We're the, uh, the, the fulcrum, if you will, in this, this entire thing upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. 
You talk about the pivotal event of human history, it was the cross. And you talk about us now in Christ, there's never been anything like it. And when we're gone, guess what? The first person to get saved after the rapture, the first person who looks around and sees a bunch of missing people and then picks up a Bible and then starts to get scared and starts to read something, and then he gets saved, you know, doesn't matter. I mean, maybe it's five minutes after the rapture, okay? Doesn't matter. He's not bride of Christ. He's not uh, church age, okay? He's not going to get the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. He's not going to receive a spiritual gift. He's not going to be baptized into union with Jesus Christ as you and I are. You realize that? Understand, he's gonna, we, we, we call him an Old Testament believer. They're, they're, it's back to those conditional circumstances on the earth. Stewardship reverts back to Israel and all those unique blessings that are ours in Christ. God's done with those. The bride is complete. These saints that are saved after the, after the rapture, they're going to be tribulational saints. Most of them are going to be tribulational martyrs. They won't live through the tribulation. They're going to be killed by Antichrist for their faith. Only a remnant will survive to, to enter into the millennial kingdom. All right, so upon whom the ends of the ages have come, realize how unique we are. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, where Satan is called the God of this age. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, no, it's the God of this age, not cosmos, I own. Not cosmos. He has not been elevated to theos status ever since the fall of Adam, no. He's not the God of this cosmos, he's the God of this I own. And I believe that represents the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. I mean, he was ferocious enough in the Old Testament to the Gentiles, to the Jews, but now... As he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking to devour. He's elevated to Theos status. He's called a god, the god of this age. And he is actively involved uh, blinding the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light, the dawning, the dawning. It's a, it's a dawning, the language there. We'll get to that language in Hebrews 1.4 because Jesus is the light. He's the shining manifestation of the Father's glory. And it's uh, connected vocabulary to what we see here. Might not, might not see, might not dawn. It, it just never dawns on them, right? We use, we use dawn as a verb sometimes. Does that ever dawn on you? How we use dawn as a verb? Okay? That's the, that's the idiom here in the, in the Greek. And so Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving so that the dawning of the gospel never shines through and pierces that darkness called the God of this age. Hebrews 3, uh, Ephesians 3, nine, Ephesians 3.9. Galatians, Ephesians. Oh, these are important. If you have yet to appreciate the unique nature of the body of Christ, the stewardship in which we live, I mean, I joke a lot about, golly, isn't it nice we didn't bring a goat this morning? How messy would that be? How bloody would that be? And that's just, you know, a silly joke i mean okay fine i can i can butcher an animal if i had to um wouldn't enjoy it but hey the unique blessings of the church though are far beyond replacing ritual with reality okay we're talking about the glories of being united to the person of god the son 
being baptized into union with God the Son. So when the Father looks at me, He doesn't see me the sinner. He sees God the Son in whom He's well pleased. Wow. Okay? And that's never been a reality until our stewardship, our dispensation. All right, Hebrews, th- uh, Hebrews Ephesians 3. And um, this stewardship of God's grace, do you know about it? He says in verse 2, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, that's our stewardship. That's our dispensation. That's the church age. Welcome to the body of Christ. This chapter outlines it for you. That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. Okay? Chapters 1 and 2. The mystery. It came to Paul as a revelation. He received it straight from Jesus Christ in his seminary training. The mystery of Christ. Which, verse 5 says, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. Angels weren't told it. Humans weren't told it. The Gentiles weren't told it. The Jews weren't told it. Even though he spoke in many portions in many ways to the fathers through the prophets, none of those many ways, none of those portions, none of those prophets ever got the mystery of the church. And it has now been revealed to his holy apostles in the prophets in the Spirit. Now we have mystery doctrine in the church age. Okay, that we're now a body in Christ. That Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. Fellow partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And this is now a heavenly reality. It's not the promise to David. It's not the the, uh, earthly theocratic kingdom. Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. Look at this whole chapter is centered on the glories of the church. Uh, Verse 8, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Don't you love that? Angels long to look and they can't fathom. Gentiles can't fathom. Israel can't fathom. Moses said, Would that all of God's people had the Holy Spirit. Moses couldn't fathom that that's what we have today and take it for granted. The unfathomable riches of Christ. And guess what? You and I can now fathom the unfathomable. It's given to us. Not only do we fathom it, we thrive in it. We we thrive in it to the point that we forget how special it is, how unique it is. The unfathomable riches of Christ. To bring to light the administration of the mystery which for ages, again, I own, has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. We're on display. They're watching. And there's a reason why they're watching. That's critical. See, that fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels, but they haven't been thrown in there yet. They're still here in the invisible world watching that invisible dimension that's layered over top of this physical dimension. And they're watching. They have to learn because they're going to testify that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. And they're going to bend the knee and they're going to confess and they're going to be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. So they're watching us. All right. So much more. In accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. This wasn't a backup plan. This wasn't a plan B. This wasn't a, oh well, 
Israel fell. Let me figure something else out here. It has always been the design of the Father to provide a bride for His Son. It's an eternal purpose. Not instead of His eternal purpose for Israel. There's an eternal purpose for Israel also. But this is His eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, so the unique nature of the church there. Finally, Hebrews 9.26. Hebrews 9.26. Think about how uh, it's called the consummation of the ages. And we'll talk about what he does in cleansing. We're going to spend some time in this because this chapter gives us detail for Chapter 1, when he talks about making purification for sins and being seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here in chapter 9, we get more detail of how he did that purification and what he did in heaven to cleanse the heavenly temple. But it was necessary. Um, you know, in the earthly tabernacle, they did it year after year after year after year. And here we go again, day of atonement. Here we go again, day of atonement. Year after year after year, there's a reminder of sins. Not so with Jesus. Once and for all, once and for all, Jesus Christ went in there and, and did what he did. And um, verse 24 says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Don't you love that? He's hanging on the cross. The veil of the temple was rent in two. And he didn't even go in there. Didn't have to go in there. Had no business going in there. The veil of the earthly temple was rent in two to show how empty it was. They hadn't had an Ark of the Covenant since Nebuchadnezzar's day. The veil of the temple was rent in two and an empty room was just sitting there exposed to everybody. And Jesus Christ went to heaven and He cleansed the heavenly temple. And uh, once and for all, not year after year after year, He doesn't suffer often since the foundation of the world, but once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin, sin singular, by the sacrifice of himself. John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, sin singular, of the world. Okay? Once and for all, and here we have it, you and I live at the consummation of the ages we now live in Christ in the very first stewardship ever after this consummation of the ages. It's, it's a glorious thing. Oh my goodness. Every Old Testament believer was saved looking forward. Christ is coming someday. Seed of the woman is coming someday. Satan's head will be crushed someday. Someday, someday, someday. And they all die in faith without seeing it. They all die in faith without seeing it. And none of them went to heaven. They went to Abraham's bosom. They went to paradise until Jesus Christ came and did away with sin once and for all. And then he's able to empty paradise out. Isn't that beautiful? He leads captivity captive. He brings paradise out of Sheol and carries it up to, to the third heaven. That couldn't happen until he did his work on the cross. So now you and I get to become believer priests after the fact. You and I get to become believer priests not on the basis of a promise, but on the basis of a fulfilled reality. What Christ achieved. He is resurrected. He is seated at the Father's right hand. And identifying with each one of us, He sends forth God the Holy Spirit to baptize us into union with His finished work. That's an amazing thing. 
And this is where we are. All right. There's also a coming world. There's also a coming world. And I'm not talking about the millennium. The millennium is a failure. (laughs) Okay? It's going to be as big a failure as anything that came before. We're talking about the new heavens and the new earth. There is a world to come. Hebrews 2.5, God did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we're speaking. The author of Hebrews is not encouraging his people to get ready for the millennium. All right. The world to come. We're talking about the new heavens and the new earth, what Ephesians 1 calls the dispensation of the fullness of times. The world to come. And whereas the world that was was destroyed by water, frozen over in the Tohu Wabohu judgment of the angelic earth, the world to come, this present world is being reserved for fire. Heavens and earth are going to be destroyed by fire. Every molecule, every atom of matter in the universe is going to be melted in intense heat. We'll have an entire physical universe done away with. That's a lot of energy. How much is that? A lot. (laughs) All right. But hey, God's got all power, so he's got more than that. Okay, we're fine with that. The world to come. That's what we're looking forward to. Let me tell you, the millennium is such a failure, at the end of which there's a revolt, there's a demand that he step off of the throne. Okay? If you think there's people today that aren't happy with the current president, imagine after a thousand years of Jesus Christ sitting on the throne most of the Gentile population is going to be furious. They're going to be sick and tired of being told what to do by that Jewish king on the, on the Jewish throne in Jerusalem. They're going to demand Satan's release and they're going to march under his banner. They're going to surround Jerusalem. The final rebellion against the will of God is right there in Revelation chapter 20, the Gog-Magog revolt, demanding that, Satan, that uh, Jesus get off that throne but he who sits in the heavens laughs, okay? Because he brought all of human history to this point and there is something better yet to come, the new heavens and the new earth. And so when we think about it, this is what we're looking forward to. I'm going to have to wrap this up. You're all getting hungry, I know. You can probably smell it from where you're sitting back there. Robert was asking me, he said, you know, my, my car was parked right there by where they're grilling. He says, your car might smell like cheeseburgers for the next three weeks. Said, yeah, I'm okay with that. <laughs> you want me to move my car or something? I, I think it's all right. Um, but understand, the... Um, there's some things here in Ephesians 1, and how do I get through this? I'm going to wrap this up, but um, in verse 18 he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. He's the heir of all things. And the first thing the Father gives him is us. Does that get your attention? Wow. You know, if you're given everything, what do you open first? Jesus is given everything. He's the heir of all things. But the first thing he's given is a bride in the unfolding of the church age. So do you know what is the hope of his calling? 
Do you know what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? Do you know what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe? So I don't know any of that. Well, you should. Are you not being tested? Are you not walking by faith? Power is perfected in weakness. All right. And these are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. That same power works in us. God the Father works in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. The God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead gives life to our mortal bodies. He works in us today. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. You see the angels there? In every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What does that mean to name a name? Why is naming important? Adam named the animals. Adam named his wife. Names are named. And why are they named? And when are they named? And in the age to come, what gets named in the new heavens and the new earth? Well, there's, there's, there's stuff to look forward to and there's a lot more to study with respect to this. Not only in this age, but also the one to come. There is a world to come. There is a coming world age. And I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Everything that belongs to Christ belongs to his bride. All right, a lot to pay attention to there. By the way, verse 10 is the verse that gives us our title for the dispensation of the fullness of times. The summing up of all things in Christ. Chapter 2 and verse 7. Everybody ignores this. Everybody wants to quote 8 and 9, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we love it. By grace we're saved through faith. Not not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But what does verse 7 say? What leads up to that? You know what? We were made alive in Christ. We were raised up with Him, seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that... Why did God save us? Did He save us so we don't go to hell when we die? So that in the ages to come, plural, ages, okay? Millennium, fullness of time. In the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You think He's showing you grace today? Can't see nothing yet. We're just getting the down payment. We're getting the deposit. We get just a little taste through the Holy Spirit that indwells us. The grace that's yet to come and the ages to come. Man, imagine what that's going to be. In the ages to come. Hebrews 2.5, Hebrews 6.5. He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we're speaking. Hebrews 6.5. The, uh, in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Hello, we've gotten a taste. That's us. And then we're going to fall away? You want to go into apostasy when He's done so much for you already? How dare you? And then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. That's a dire warning. It's one of the, the deepest warnings in all the Bible. But we, all we've done is we've tasted the powers of the age to come. There is an age to come. And I'm telling you, 
I'm looking forward to it. According to his promise, I'm looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the powers of that age, all we have now is a taste. There are powers coming up. So we want to be aware of that. We want to have a a recognition of that. All right, next week we'll come back and we'll look at verses 3 and 4. We'll talk about the the, uh, light that shines forth from the source, the sun that reveals the Father, the eminence that happens there in that. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this message. I pray that we have a handle on it. If there's anything that's not clear, Father, I pray that you would make it clear, that you would allow us to review this material, maybe listen to it again and again and again, to search the Scripture, see if these things are so. Father, we call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. Uh, Whatever the details are, if we're not clear, make it clear. We want to be fully on board with your program, Father. We're your fellow workers. You call us to be fellow workers to glorify your Son. We want to do so on an adult basis in the full participation in what you've designed us for. We're saved in the good works. Prepare beforehand that we should walk in them. And I pray, Father, that you would show us what those works are and we can run with endurance this race that's set before us. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, for this teaching, for your truth. We thank you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.